0: Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family, or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host, my name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I have learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And today I have the privilege of having my friend and colleague, Alexis Cyril, to speak to us about a lot of things that are really important. But first I'll tell you a little bit about her. She is a partner, a matrimonial family law group. In addition to her matrimonial practice, she's a recognized leader in the quickly evolving area of reproductive family law. She was instrumental in the recent passage of the Child Parent Security Act, legislation that legalizes gestational surrogacy in New York and ensures protections for New York families formed through the use of assisted reproduction. She is deeply committed in providing compassionate legal advice to her clients, whether they're going through marriage dissolution or embarking on an exciting but complicated journey to building their family through assisted reproduction. She is a co-chair of the Surrogacy Subcommittee of the NYSBA Family Law Section, the American Bar Association's Assisted Reproductive Technologies, New York State Bar Association's Family Law Section, New York City Bar Association's Matrimonial Committee, and the Women's Bar Association of the State of New York Reproductive Rights Committee. She's got lots of great professional affiliations. She speaks frequently and has many awards and honors, including the New York Super Lawyers Group, named top woman lawyer in the Metro New York Super Lawyers Group, and named to best lawyer of 2023. I'm so excited to have Alexis here to talk to us about all of the things that will be helpful for our audience to know. Regarding the legal aspects of donor conception, it's so important for people to understand not just what's going to happen um, with their surrogate, which kind of seems very obvious, but also in donor conception from the very beginning, it's really important to establish parentage and who's going to parent the child and all of that. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that, Alexis? Sure. So, you know,
1: when we talk about assisted reproduction and Legal parentage, right? From the legal perspective, we think of it as consent being the cornerstone of how you create a legal, create, establish, secure, legal parent-child relationship, right? So whereas with traditional conception and parentage analyses, you look at things like a biological connection or gestating, who carries the child, or a marital presumption to create legal um, parentage. When we're talking about assisted reproduction, we look at intent to be a parent and consent to the assisted reproduction. And so the whole sh- everything shifts to focus on that because you can have parentage absent any genetic connection, you can have parentage absent gestation, you can create parentage even in the absence of all of those things and a a marital relationship. So that's really how we've shifted the analysis for any kind of conception, donor, or even just, you know, IVF with your own gametes. Um, we're looking at those consent forms. We're looking at, did you intend to be a parent? So it's a lot of preconception analysis.
0: So if someone is thinking about, well, we're just going to, we know who the donor is. We're not really worried about it. We feel comfortable with this donor. Or maybe two people are coming together and they're saying, okay, we, we don't really need to get married. We're happy to have kids together. People feel that they don't really need to consider the le- these legal ramifications. So maybe right. we can talk a little bit about what the potential issues can be for them.
1: You know, the rule of thumb is always come back to intent and consent. and. How are we going to evidence that, right? Because it's not like, you know, when we think of a paterni- traditional paternity suit where you can get a DNA test and it'll establish definitively that there's a link, right? And, parent- and parentage there. Here, we have to memorialize it, right? So if you have an intent and you're consenting to be a parent through assisted reproduction, donor and otherwise, it needs to be written. It needs to be in a record to evidence the donative intent is what we call it. So with donor arrangements, you need an agreement. You need a donor agreement. It doesn't have to be you know, assuming things are going to be bad in the future. It's just the right way to do it. Memorialize your intent to be a donor or memorialize your intent to be a parent because you can't be both. So put it in place in an agreement. Also, if you're doing the assisted reproduction at a clinic, You're going to have to sign all sorts of consent forms and advanced directives. And those establish not just what you're telling the clinic about yourself, but courts could look at it in the future as evidence of what you intended between you and the person you're conceiving with. So if you identify yourself on a clinic form as the patient's partner, you're not necessarily going to be construed as a donor in the future. So you want to always just make it sure that you're identifying yourself as having either donative intent or intent to be a parent. You know, in the past there's been litigation over, you know, donor-conceived children where, for example, an unmarried couple would fill out forms together at a clinic and one of them would not identify his or herself as a donor. And then, you know, years later, the relationship breaks up. And one of the intended parents at the time raises the child and acts as the sole legal parent and and, other, and custodial parent. And then, you know, the other one comes back and says, I want visitation. I want to have a say in what the child is doing for their education, et cetera. Unless we have something other than that consent form to look at, there's going to be some presumption there that there was an intent to be a parent if you signed the consent form at the time. Now, we get into all sort of legal nuances when we talk about legal principles like estoppel, like did you hold yourself out as a parent over the years? But that is, again, that's a fact-based you know, analysis over time, whereas you could have something that's just cut and dry, a binding legal document, preconception, or even you know post-conception during the pregnancy. And it just evidences what everybody intended from the go.
0: And how do people think through that? If they're coming to you and they're saying they really want to make sure that everything, you know, they've got their, you know, T's crossed and I's dotted, how do they really think about, well, how do I manage this situation when I'm really not sure I, you know, I met this person, we want to have this baby together. We both would like it to evolve naturally. And of course, there's all sorts of psychological reasons why you, you know, why that shouldn't happen, right? Why you need to prepare who's going to be the parent for the child. But legally, where does that put people where they're saying, you know, I'm I'm not so sure, or maybe I'm just a little bit worried about it. What is really at risk for them? Well, well, the,
1: I'm not so sure approach is not the best approach. And so when, when people come to me with that, you know, of course, first thing I do is send them to you and say, this needs to be hashed out. It needs to be talked about individually. And as a group, think about not just what it's going to feel like when the baby's an infant, but maybe in 10 years, if you're in a relationship with someone else and you have a child, and then there's disclosure about siblings. So once the you know, mental health component has been fleshed out. And then we're talking about legal again. There has to be some decision at that point, because when we're making drafting an agreement, it's either a donor agreement or a co-parenting agreement. There's no in-between. If you're a donor, you have no rights and you have no obligations. If you're a parent, you got them both. So while we can have agreements that kind of Condition what those obligations are. You're legally one or the other. There's no gray area. Um, And so I'm always very clear when I talk to people. This is you're going to be. This is going to be a donor agreement, or this is going to be a co-parenting and custody agreement. It's one or the other. And if you do intend to be a co-parent, great. But let's say you're not in an intimate relationship with the other person, and you really do want to do just that, co-parent from different households or something like that again, doable, but it has to be documented. And we want to say, you know, how are you going to share legal custody of this child? Who's going to make major decisions? What's going to be the living arrangements? What are the child support obligations? So those are things that we deal with in a co-parenting arrangement.
0: Right. And so all of those things will bind the the, let's say the donor to this child if they want to be a parent if they say well yes i kind of want to co-parent a little bit but if they're a co-parent then they really have to have financial responsibility and all kinds of other responsibilities yep. you can be a donor yeah we have donor agreements all the time that say
1: i'm uncle so and so you know and all parties acknowledge we're going to be actively involved in each other's lives and i'm going to be known as this person and that's fine but again The intended parent needs to know, I can't come ask you for child support, donor, you know, and donor needs to know, I can't go to court and say, I am entitled to X, Y, Z with respect to this child, seeing this child, making decisions for this child. There's no legal standing for that.
0: And do you ever see cases where people change that, where they come in as the donor and they come back to you and say, you know, now I want to co-parent.
1: Where they feel that way. Yes. Again, it's not a title or legal status that you can just switch. Okay. So that would involve further. Yeah. That would involve some further legal maneuvering if you want to then become something, something else. Um, but once you're a donor, you're a donor.
0: Right. So I In think, that, name. yes. And I, I, I think that's really good for everyone to hear because, So many people feel like, well, we want this relationship to happen organically and we'll see how it goes. Well, you can't see how it goes emotionally or legally because you need to prepare for this child's well-being and the child needs to know who's going to be the parent who's going to the PTA meeting and who's going to be this, you know, maybe uncle person, but not, you can't be midway. Right. And the default,
1: you know, everybody should know that the presumption and the default, you know, in the absence of something saying you're a donor. Is that you could be deemed a parent, even if you didn't want to, if it's not documented somewhere, if we don't have some record of donative intent, if things don't go as planned and the parent who's raising the child loses her or his job or, you know, whatever it is and you're on bed and needs extra financial support, you you have exposure financially because there's no evidence that you wanted to just only be... A donor. So anyway, I'm belaboring the same point, but I have to say people it takes a lot to get it through their heads because people nevertheless come to me all the time and say, but it's it's gonna be fine.
0: It's gonna be fine. <laughs> Maybe it is great. Then you'll yeah. never have to touch your agreement. Right. But it's better to set it out the right way. And I think that now that we're seeing so many matching services and people finding their donors on Facebook and you yeah. know, having these arrangements with people that they barely know. They even when they say, Well, you know, I met this person, they're great, and we've known each other for a year and we're doing fine. And we just, you know, recently talked about this um with one of the physicians on the podcast about how dangerous that is medically too. You're at risk for all sorts of diseases and things like that. Right. But right. you're also putting yourself at legal risk, right? If you don't create this agreement with the donor.
1: Right. I don't like to be doom and gloom, but that's what lawyers do. We have to, right? We have to anticipate what could go wrong and help prepare for that. So it's, it's not just with respect to a live-born child, but if you create embryos, right, with, with a donor in the absence of all these documentation, there could be issues with respect to the embryos too down the road. So, you know, I just think it's not a lot of time in the grand scheme of parenting a child or, or you know, a child's life to document what everybody thinks at the outset and tuck it away if you have to. But just make sure you're diligent about how you identify yourself at a clinic, if you're doing it at a clinic, and work it out between you and writing, have a lawyer review it on both sides so it's enforceable, and then you don't ever have to think about it again.
0: It's so helpful for people to really know that. And I think also, since you brought up this issue of embryos, there's a lot of legal decision making to do with regard to embryos. Can you talk about that a little bit, Alexis? Yeah. So it's the same. Again, we're going to come back to the same
1: concept every time, intent and consent when it comes to legal parentage, right? So when you're creating embryos, uh, whether you're in a marriage partnership or you're doing it with an intended co-parent or with donated sperm or eggs, right? Again, you're going to fill out these forms at the clinic and the clinic's going to ask you, what do you want to do with the embryos if you and or your partner die if you separate, if you divorce. And you have to check boxes. And a lot of the times when people are completing those forms, it's when you're excited to get going and conceive and become a parent. And you don't think anything could ever go wrong. And you just want to get to that point, and you give it and you never think about it again. And like I said before, while while there are really advanced directives to the clinic saying, here's what I want you to do, IVF facility, if these things happen, if there's nothing written between you and the other person who you're creating these embryos with, that's what's going to be looked at as an indicator. So I also practice some matrimonial law, And there's plenty of times where people um, in the context of a divorce say, I want to keep the embryos or I want to keep her. I don't want him or her to be able to use them or whatever combination it is. And I'll say, okay, great. Did you guys have an agreement that said that? And they'll say, no. But, you know, I'm not going to be a parent or, or, but I'm 45 and I'm never going to be able to conceive it. And then we'll say, okay, great. What did you, what'd you sign at the clinic? And it could be 12 years earlier when they're happily, you know, pursuing IVF together. And the husband just says, yeah, sure. You can have them, honey. You know, like something like that, you know, if I, if I die or if we get divorced. And then here's this document that says something that's completely contrary to what the contemporaneous intent and consent is. So anyway, long way of saying again, you know, you can do an agreement between two con- two people who create embryos together at any point, anytime. It's never too late. You can change an earlier. Well, you can just keep doing them, and it's important to do that. And we talk through not just what happens if I if if I allow my s- future ex spouse to use them um, after we're divorced or something, but like, can I consent to her? or him using them without having financial obligations. You can consent to being a posthumous, meaning after-death parent. There's all sorts of ways that we can protect both parties so that there doesn't have to be litigation over embryos. Again, though, it's just you have to stop and think about it.
0: So I think that that's really important for everyone to think about that it's so important to pause because, as you're saying, there's kind of a rush to get pregnant or a rush to just say, you know, I've been through so much fertility treatment and now I can use a donor and let's just kind of check the boxes as fast as possible. And we don't really think about it. And I, I have had those cases where somebody's married and then, you know, two years later they get divorced and now the person wants the embryos who now wants a second child. The other person doesn't want a second child but that person is a little bit older. And she says, I can't use my eggs anymore, or I don't have any more donor sperm if we use the sperm. And I went back and I went back to the uh, sperm bank and they don't have this donor any longer. So my only chance of having a genetic sibling or my only chance of using my eggs or my is to use these embryos, but we broke up. And now what? And so that's really scary to think about, but people don't really think about the future you know, because there's all this tension around just trying to get pregnant, and it's very right. hard to slow down and say, "Okay, let me consult with someone like Alexis right. who can help me kind of think through these things legally and make sure that I'm protecting myself, my partner, the child. That we kind of think about every possible scenario." Yep. Yeah, and, and you know what? It's it's changing.
1: It's always it's continuing to change the legal landscape because as the science progresses and new, you know, new things are available, law has to catch up. So it's always changing and it doesn't, it can't hurt to keep revisiting it, you know? So every year when you get that notice that you're being charged another thousand dollars to keep your embryos frozen somewhere, pause and think again, should I, do I need to update, maybe update what I want for my dispositional elections is what we call them. So there can be reminders throughout and, and take that pause. Absolutely. And just have your, always have your forms somewhere, you know, just, it, it's your, you can always request your medical records from whether it's a storage facility or the IVF clinic, have your consent forms, make sure they reflect what you want. If they don't, again, talk to me, talk to you and see if there's something you can put in writing that at least says status quo, you know, at least that's sometimes we do that too. You don't have to make a decision. You don't have to say, destroy them. Or give them to me, give them to you. Sometimes you can just say, preserve the status quo unless there's a court order or something. But at least you have some protection in there that nothing is just going to automatically happen because there's some presumption in the absence of you indicating otherwise.
0: Yeah. And now we're in this tough situation because there's so many people who are moving their embryos to friendly states, right? And yeah. so, yeah. What sorts of risks do people have when they say, well, you know, I'm not too worried about it. I, you know, I'm seeing a lot of people move their embryos to Connecticut, but I'm sure that's happening in lots of other states as well. Do you have concern or do you counsel your clients about that? Yeah, so here's what we do. I mean, well,
1: this is what I do in a donor agreement, and an embryo disposition agreement. You know, I always provide in there a couple of things. One, we say, Everybody agrees that when this contract is executed, it's going to be sent to the medical facility where the gametes, the embryos are stored with instructions to put it in the patient file with the consent forms. We have another paragraph that says, and then thereafter, any time the frozen genetic material is moved, the party shall again send it, this copy of this agreement to the facility where they're moved. I mean, obviously there's room for human error if things don't, if there's no follow-up. But hopefully a patient file stays intact and travels with it, with the stored genetic material. And then when you look in there, you know, stapled or appended, whatever, right to the consent form is this agreement that should go with the biological material wherever they travel. That could be another, you know, another point if you're, pause and think like, okay, I'm moving them now. I should be deliberate with what I'm going to fill out. If I'm filling out new forms, revisit what I did before, just make sure. And I always put this in the agreements too, that you're agreeing to that at the time that somebody who you, one of the contributors doesn't say like, well, I never said I was going to tell alert the next facility. So I don't need to tell them. No, it's in the document. You're telling him everywhere, everywhere these embryos are transferred or, or stored gametes. Same thing with donor arrangements. We make it very, very clear that it's not just that the donated genetic material stays at RMA, for example, if you do at RMA or what, you know, whatever fertility clinic you're with, it's that you're saying, I- I'm relinquishing custody, control, ownership of this genetic material in perpetuity, doesn't matter where they go, right? So we're deliberate to say that in all of our documents.
0: And do you have concern about embryos being in certain states with the political climate that we're living with now? Right in this this moment, no. But if you look at the language,
1: many of the anti-abortion uh statutes in many states, if you look at the language, the way life is is defined as at fertilization in a lot of states. And then when we talk, they talk about what an abortion is they talk about termination of a pregnancy all they have to do is just take that language out of the statute you know talk about termination of a pregnancy and we still and it still has that language that that life is there in a frozen state then very quickly an abortion could be thawing and destroying embryos so the language right now we have some protection of because it's not, uh, it's, uh, they're all in the context of terminating a pregnancy that has already implanted. If that changes, and I think some states are discussing that too, just simply saying ending human life, well, right there, you're in trouble because then embryos are considered human life and thawing and discarding them is considered termination of a pregnancy. So um, it's a slippery slope the way it is right now. No language that I know of that's existing exposes embryos definitively, but it could change. It could change with just a very slight tweak of some of the statutory language in certain states.
0: Yeah. And so it it can be scary for people who don't live in in, uh, states that are more friendly. Yeah. I mean, I... I have some intended parents come to me
1: sometimes and they live in Texas or they live in a state where it's foreboding, (laughs) I guess I Uh should say. And they're just at the stage where they're going to be creating their embryos. And they'll talk about coming to another state, coming to New York to do their IVF so that you're not in a position where then you have to create them and ship them. You just come here or you come to wherever it is and you do your medicine there. You have your embryos there in the first instance.
0: Well, that's smart. I mean, I think that people have to really consider all of these things as they're going through their journey. And, yeah. you know, again, you know, as we're saying, it's very hard to do that because everybody's rushing to get pregnant and wants things to work out and everybody is so happy and feels like yeah. this is a great, you know, arrangement that I have and nothing's going to go wrong. But it is good to kind of pause and think through, I've got to talk to my lawyer and make sure that everything is kind of cleared ahead of time, even, you know, we think about when we get married and we have children for the first time, we think about, you know, who would we leave our children to? If God forbid something happens, you have to do the same thing with embryos, right? So there's so many considerations and and it's really important to have yeah. good consultation.
1: I was a patient too. I, I we, You and I have talked about this. and we went through many years of failed IVFs and everything. And I know that feeling and I talk about it with my clients too because- I want to acknowledge it and give space for it. It's a real feeling be- when things aren't working and you want to just feel proactive, like you're going to do the next thing, your next thing to get to this ultimate goal of being a parent. But I always say to people and and it's I know it's it's levity and I don't mean it to make light of anybody's pain, but the truth is is that one day you will be a parent you know and you will be the parent you said you weren't going to be who gets annoyed with a whining child or whatever mm-hmm. and all of this will be a distant memory it's important to do it right you will get there you will get there and there i like to find other ways for my clients to be feeling proactive even if there's you know if you're on hold because you're working out a legal issue maybe you can be doing some other stuff that's going to have to happen before your next cycle or your next you know, journey. You can be doing something in, you know, on parallel paths. So you're still moving forward, but make sure that when there's a, a legal pause, it's for a reason and, and make sure you listen to it.
0: That's great. Well, I think that's a good uh, note to end on. Alexis, do you have any other thoughts um, or suggestions for our audience or ways that they can reach you? Well, I have no boundaries, so I always give my cell phone out to people. <laughs> so okay. You can get that from
1: from Lisa. Like I said, I, I am always happy to talk to people as a former intended parent, you know, someone who's been through it. I don't charge for consultations. I want to be a sounding board for people. I want to be a safe space. and. It all comes around if you, you know, if you need legal help thereafter, hopefully you'll call me, but there's no, I really mean it. I love doing what I do. And that's just being a part of getting people to where they want to be. So reach out, dumb questions, non-legal questions. I don't care.
0: (laughs) All right. That's great. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And yes, if anybody wants to reach out to me, I'll get you connected to Alexis. And thank you so much for joining us today and learning a little bit more about the legal aspects of donor conception. If you want to reach out to me at familybuilding.net, there's, we have a lot of resources and certainly please subscribe because that's how we keep going and that's how we can make sure that you won't miss an episode, that you'll stay in touch with us and learn all the things that we want to teach you. So thanks for coming and I'll see you next time.